And the title of the message is The Eastern Gate Prophecy and Mystery. This is where Jesus entered into Jerusalem, was the Eastern Gate. And uh, let's look at the passage together. John chapter 12, verse 12. On the next day, much people, this is verse 12, on the next day, much people that were come to the feast. Now, what feast is this? This is preparing for the day of um, the, um, the, the feast. Uh, my brain is not working. And we're recording this. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's the feast before the Day of Atonement. It's the feast of Passover. This is a great feast that takes place. What people did in this feast of the Passover is that they would build little huts all over the Temple Mount, all around the temple. They would make these huts, and they remembered the 40 years in the wilderness. And they stayed in those huts for several days, and then on the Day of Atonement, they came forth to celebrate. So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, it is this time of the feast and the people that are living in the huts remembering the wilderness and God delivering them from it. And this is when he enters through the eastern gate. And on the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna. Blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold thy king coming, sitting on an ass's colt. Now, this prophecy of Jesus coming into the city when, you're, when you talk about Jesus entering the city and he's going to, to begin the process of revealing to people that he is the Messiah, no doubt about it. When he does come in, here's the, here's the mystery of the Eastern Gate. The Eastern Gate is a place that no longer is open. It has been sealed. It was sealed back in about 700 A.D., there was a Turkish ruler named Suleiman who was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And when he was building the walls of Jerusalem and building all the gates, someone came to him and said, you know that the Prince of God, the Son of God, Jesus, is going to come through the eastern gate. And Suleiman was so upset he was so upset about that that he had the gate closed and sealed. And then he set before that gate this, this graveyard of, of dead bodies that they reburied and they put there because if Jesus was a true Jew and if he was of God and a prophet, he could not walk in a graveyard. It was forbidden, supposedly, he thought. So can we right now 
pull up the picture of the eastern gate. Today, this is what the eastern gate looks like. And it's sealed as you see. And you can see all of the graves scattered across in front of it. Jesus entered that gate. And the prophecy of the eastern gate is this. That when Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives, he will come through this eastern gate. Now the foolishness of man is that the Turkish prince thought that he could stop Jesus by sealing the gate. But if he had read the scriptures, when Jesus comes back, the Mount of Olives is going to be cleaved asunder. It'll be divided. Just like you take a kitchen knife and you cut it, it's going to divide. And when it divides, it's going to come right down to the eastern gate. Can we get another picture of the eastern gate as well? Okay. Yeah. If you can see, if you can see, this is the Temple Mount right here. And uh, this is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The Muslims, during that period under Suleiman, they built the Aqsa Mosque. And, and when, you, when you look this way, this is east, and this is the Mount of Olives up here. And uh, when Jesus comes in, he's going to be coming from this direction, east to west, and he'll be entering the eastern gate that is closed. Can you see that? All right. Okay. Let's leave that up there, and let's just go down a few thoughts here, all right? First of all, the divine omnipotence of this incident when Jesus is coming into the gate. What happened a few days before this? What happened some seven days before this? Seven days before this, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to Bethany. We're going to go to Bethany, and we're going to go to Jerusalem. And the disciples immediately got very somber about it. Because why? Because the high priest already had a bounty on his head. If he came to Jerusalem, chances are he would never get out. But Jesus begins to walk away from them. They don't want to go. He's walking away from them. He's heading towards Bethany. He's headed towards Jerusalem. And so Thomas, you ever heard of Doubting Thomas? Thomas says... Let's go die with him. That's the spirit. Let's go die with him. So they follow him to Bethany. And when he gets there, Lazarus is dead. Jesus had been notified. Jesus had been told. Jesus waited two days. And he comes. And when he gets there, they're mourning Lazarus. He's been dead for four days. He's in the tomb. His sisters, Mary and Martha, are upset. When Jesus comes, Martha comes to him. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here, your friend wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, Lazarus will be alive. And she said, I know, I know. In the day of resurrection, we'll all come forth. And Jesus says to her, the day of the resurrection, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. He said, take me to where he is. 
So they take him to the tomb. You want to see the tomb of Lazarus? Raise your hand. All right. Here we go. Can we get to the tomb of Lazarus? There it is today. And you can see St. Lazarus' tomb there at the top, and then it's written in Arabic. Uh, that's, that's the tomb. Now, it's a small tomb that meanders underground. Would you like to see that? Okay. You ready, Emily? Give me one of those meandering pictures. All right. Okay. This is coming down into the tomb. You saw the, uh, the gate or the door of the tomb. The tomb comes down on these old stone steps. And when you come down this tomb on these steps, you come around this way. And if you can see it, there are niches in the wall here. And these niches are where they lay the bodies in the tomb. And so this is the tomb. When, when Jesus calls Lazarus to come out, you know, you get pictures of Lazarus coming out of the tomb walking. But if you read the text and you read it clear, clearly, the text says that he was bound hand and foot with a napkin over his face. He was put in one of these niches. Now Jesus comes to the tomb and there's a stone rolled at the door. And Jesus says, remove the stone. And they remove the stone. And then Jesus groans within himself and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes up out of the tomb. Now to me, the only way he's going to get out, since he is bound like an Egyptian mummy, the only way he's going to get out is if he floats out. He's going to have to levitate out of that tomb to come out. So when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, then Lazarus comes up out of the tomb. You'd say, well, you know, that's, that's, that's total impossibility, him floating up out of the tomb. I mean, that's total impossibility. Yeah, it is an impossibility. But so is raising him from the dead. And if he can raise him from the dead, then he can float him out. No questions asked. This is the, the undeniable proofs of the resurrection are bound up in all of this. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die and be resurrected. But before he does it, he goes to the tomb of Lazarus and raises him. Now you've got to understand something. In ancient history, in the first Christian century, the doctrine that inflamed the masses against Christianity was the doctrine of the resurrection. That Jesus was able to raise the dead and that Jesus himself came out of the tomb alive. That is the doctrine. That's the doctrine that got Christians stoned. That's the doctrine that put them in prison. That's the doctrine. But the truth of the matter is, everybody knew it that lived in Jerusalem. They knew it. Matter of fact, if you read on here in the Gospel of John, if you go down a little bit farther, it'll talk about the high priest 
and what they think about the resurrection of Lazarus. And that is, the resurrection of Lazarus demands that Jesus be put to death. The high priests were saying he must be put to death because all the people will follow him because he raised Lazarus. After Lazarus was raised, what happened? Glad you asked the question. Here's what happened. After Lazarus was raised, Jesus left for a moment. He left for a day or two. And he comes back after the Sabbath. And he eats in the house of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And when he's sitting in the house of Mary and Martha, and he's eating with them, the whole city is outside the house. They're all looking in. They're all wanting to see Jesus, and they really want to see Lazarus. And so they're seeing Jesus, and they're seeing Lazarus, and the Jews are upset. All of this is taking place, and all of these things are recorded in the first Christian century. There's numerous writings about Lazarus and his life and his ministry after Jesus raised him from the dead. There's numerous reports of different people who were converted because of the resurrection of Lazarus. This is what Jesus did. Let's go to the next thought. You ready, Emily? Here's the divine relationship. Now Lazarus has been raised. Now Lazarus has been raised. After he's been raised... Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem, and he calls his disciples to him. And he says, I want you to go into the city to a certain place. And when you get to that place, there will be a donkey, female. And beside that donkey will be a colt. When you get to that spot, untie them. And if you're walking out and somebody asks what you're doing, you tell them these words. The master has need of him. Now, this is so very cool. I hope I can bring you with me on this, all right? Because Jesus has a relationship with the animal's owner and his disciples didn't know about it. Nobody else knew about it, but Jesus knew everything about the owner, and he knew exactly where the donkey would be, and Jesus sends them, and when they say the master has need of him, there's no description of the master. He will know who he is. He will know who the master is. For me, that's so personal because in our life, we run into people and God is speaking to people that we don't even know. And we make this supernatural connection with people. Like I was talking about last night. I'm sitting there and I'm sort of praying for today. And I said, Lord, I'd sure, sure like to have a blessing looking forward to this. Because I always doubt myself. And the phone rang. And it was that friend of ours, Lola, who lives over in Texas, hadn't heard from her in years. 
And she said, I, I want to find out something, some details about the church that, that Pastor White is starting. And I said, this is Pastor White. And she said, no, you can't be Pastor White. Now you think I'm making this next part up. No, you can't be Pastor White. And I said, my mother told me I was, yeah. yeah. She said, you're too young. Your voice is too young. Now you think I'm making that up, right? Yeah, yeah okay. And so that's the blessing. When she said that, that's the blessing. No. You know, and so she says, I'm really thinking about you, and I'm thinking about the church, and I'm thinking about my friend, and my friend wants to come and wants to be a part of the church. And so I'm trying to, to put all these pieces together, and I thought, wow, you know, I just prayed over here in Baton Rouge. And all of a sudden, all the way from West Texas, I get this phone call that comes in this moment. That's a connection. Remember when on our... 20th anniversary, I may have told this story, but I love to tell it. Um, on our 20th anniversary, we had gone to the Bahamas, and we were staying in a hotel, and it was beautiful, and it was great, and it was wonderful. And uh, so it's actually the anniversary day, the very day. And we're sitting down on the beach, and the sun is setting, and there's, there's Caribbean steel drum music playing, and they're picking up, you know, the the chairs and stuff on the beach. And behind us, there's a couple of these guys that are working for the beach service. And one of them says, I got saved today. And boy, my ears perked up. And so I'm talking to Pam. I can hear that. And the other guy said, no, no, you can't be saved. You got to be good. You got to be good. You got to live your life. You got to be good to go to heaven. He said, no, no. I prayed today. I got saved. He said, no, no, you can't do that. And so they're arguing. And, and you know, they, all of a sudden, the whole beach service crowd is sort of pulled around. It's probably 15, 20 of them. They're, they're all arguing over doctrine. And so I'm there with Pam. And I said, you know, I got to go back there. And she said, yeah, I know. So I got up and I went back there and I said, which one of you got saved? He said, I did, huh? I said, I've been saved too. And they began to ask me questions and I began to talk about it and how to come to Christ and how to be saved. And about that time, here comes right up against me, this, this guy and he's a, he's a big guy and he's got a lot of gold chains and, and a lot of jewelry and, and got this big lion's head right here on his chest and and he stands next to me. And while I'm talking to this guy, he's saying, Amen. Amen. You tell him, preacher. Amen. You tell him. It's all Jesus, man. It's all Jesus. And so I'm, I'm talking and he's, he's doing that. And man, I'm falling in love with this guy. I'm falling in love with him. And so, you know, I, in the middle of, of leading these other people to Christ, I turned to him and I said, Are you a Christian? Yeah, man. I'm Jehovah Witness. And I thought, well, okay. It only happens in my life. And, and so I, I, turned, I turned to him and I said, God bless you, man. And, and, and I lead this guy to Christ and, and lead the others to Christ. And this guy with the, this thing around his neck, he is just wild happy, wild happy. And, and I said, now you're a Jehovah Witness. How does that work? 
He said, man, I got saved two weeks ago. I've been, I've been witness for Jehovah ever since I got saved. And I said, yeah, that's the way it works, baby. I'm Jehovah witness. We are. We're all witnessing for him. And, and he said, okay, I own all this beach service. You and your wife have anything you want. You want a catamaran? You want, you want to go parasailing? Whatever you want. We, you get it all because you be my preacher. And I said, I'll be your preacher, baby. I'm your preacher. It's amazing how God brings us together, isn't it? God does that. And we see it right here. I mean, this is, most folks that just walk past this, this donkey and gathering this donkey and walking back. But to me, this is what I call a God moment. A God, we have God moments in our life that are very special if we stop to savor them. Uh, I probably told this story too, but when Bradley left to go to Tampa to start his church, he, uh, he had all of these plans, and he's like his mother, very linear in his thinking, and he had all these plans, and he said, Dad, do you think all these plans will work? And I said, you know, buddy, them. They'll work if they work. I said, but what you're going to need is a God moment. Because we operate on God moments. When God connects in our life, and it's a mystery to us, God connects to our life, and all of a sudden, things change. And so he went to start the church, and and things were, it was just like, like starting this one. It's sort of a slow process, and you wonder and you pray. And, and so he's, he's going through all that. And then he calls me one day. And he, he says, Dad, Dad, Dad. <laughs> yeah, baby, what is it? He said, I just had a God moment. We got a God moment, Dad. I said, tell me about it. He said, we can't find a place to meet. I live in a one-bedroom apartment. We can't find a place to meet. And so I go to the marquee. They've got this nice room in the marquee. And I go in to, to, to ask if I can have that room or if I can pay to use that room. And they said, no, you can't. No, you can't. The secretary said, no, you can't. So Brad's talking to her. She said that she had been saved, but she wasn't living right. So he prayed with her at the desk. So right after he got through praying with her at the desk, all of a sudden through the door comes the manager. And he walks around past Brad, and he taps him on the shoulder. And he says, follow me. And Brad goes to his office and sits down. And so the guy sits down, asks his name. He said, I'm Brad White, and they, they're talk. Then the guy said, are you a salesman? What are you here for? And Bradley said, I'm, I'm a preacher. I'm starting a church. And the guy saw her rock back in his chair, and Brad said he got emotional. And he said, I need to talk to you. My wife left me two weeks ago. And so Brad talks with him and hears the story. And Brad says, what you need first of all to get your life right is you got to get, you got to get everything set with Jesus. You got to be saved. You got to be saved. And the guy got out of his chair and came around where Brad was. They got on their knees and he prayed and he accepted Jesus. And he got saved. And he got through, they stood up, they hugged. He walked around his desk. He sat down, and he said, now, what do you want? 
And Brad said, I want to rent that room. He said, it's not for rent. But I tell you what, you can use it every Sunday. And I'll be your first member. That's a God moment. We were shouting and hollering on the phone. He's in Tampa. You know, I don't know where I was. I was in, I think I was up in Atlanta, right? That's where we were. And we're shouting on the phone, and it was just great. What we see with this donkey is a God moment. It's the way God works, a divine relationship with a donkey owner. How great is that? Here's the third truth I wanted to give you. And that's the laying down of the coats on the street. As Jesus comes in on that donkey, they lay down their coats. Somebody say, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked. This is, this is part of the way life was in the first Christian century. Whenever an emperor would come in from a victory in battle, whenever he would enter the city, the people would gather and they would take off their coats. Remember, they had several layers that they wore. And, and the vesture was the part that would be like the undergarment that was like an A-frame dress that went down from the neck all the way. They would take out their outer coat, and as the emperor was coming, they would throw their coats down on the pavement. Why? Because it was a picture of them totally surrendering to their leader. They totally surrendered to him. Alexander the Great, when he would enter a conquered city, the people would come and they would lay their coats down because they wanted to survive and not be put to death. Jesus is coming through and it's all love. It's all love. By the way, Alexander the Great, he went to Jerusalem. And when Alexander the Great went to Jerusalem, about 250 B.C., when he went there, he's, he's headed towards the city and the high priest, this is recorded by Josephus and other writers, he's headed towards the city of Jerusalem and the high priest come out of the city and they come to meet Alexander the Great. And when they come to meet Alexander the Great, this is one of those God moments when they come to meet Alexander the Great, he has his soldiers with him. They're ready, hands on the heel of their swords as they saw the priest coming. And Alexander the Great told them to stay. And he went forward towards the high priest who had the name of God across his head in the Coronetti War. He came to where the high priest was. It's Real tense moment. Nobody knows what's going to happen here. And Alexander the Great went down on one knee before the high priest. Then he stood back up and he said, Before I started this march, I went to hell's port. I went there to find out if I would be successful. And one came to me 
with that name that's on his head. One came to me with that name. And he said, I would be successful. And he said to the priest, what do you want? They said, we don't want our city destroyed. He said, I won't destroy it. They said, we don't want our army taken from us. He said, I will not take your army. We want to be able to have our holy days and our worship. You can have your holy days and your worship. So when Alexander the Great was destroying place after place after place after place, when he got to Jerusalem, God had already met with him. And Jerusalem was not destroyed. There is this connection that God has. Alexander the Great? Where does this come from? This is the mystery of God. We don't have the answer. People can ask you questions, you can make up answers, or you can just be honest and say, I don't have the answer. God's big. I serve a big God. He's all the way around the world. I believe God created the heavens and the earth on six days, and he rested on the seventh. And he didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he was done. It was done. It's over. I remember years ago, uh, Butch Lemon and I, we were trying to build a closet. And we had bought one of these particle board things for a closet. And it was the most complicated, backwards thing to figure out. And we, uh, we worked for two or three days on that. Put it together, it didn't look right. You know, you ever done that? I built a swing set one time, and I told Pam to come out in the backyard and look at it. She came in the backyard, and she said, something wrong with it. Something wrong with it. I said, no, there's nothing wrong with it. It looks great. She said, you know those four legs? Aren't they supposed to go that way and not that way? Yeah, that's you're right. Okay. Well, that's the way it was for Butch and I. So, so when we, we said, okay, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to work on this. We're going to work, 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 work. We're going to do this closet. But once we get it fixed, we're going to go out and get coffee, and we're going to come back in this closet, and we're going to celebrate. Thank God it's over. And we did. We did. Now, that's the seventh day. The seventh day was rest because everything is complete. That's like Israel. God, God said, rest on the seventh day. Is that because there's nothing else to do? Not for us. For us, the seventh day meant God's going to take care of me. Used to be an old song we used to sing, God will take care of you through every day or all the way. God will take care of you. That's the seventh day. The reason you're not plowing on the seventh day is because God is going to be sending the rain. God's going to be sending the sunshine. The reason you're not picking fruit or whatever on the seventh day is because God's going to make sure all of it is put together. It's just a day of faith where we believe. The palms. You ready? I'm closing on this. All right. Can we cheer? Yay! Okay. The palms. What does that mean? It's interesting. When Jesus came in on the donkey, that's significant. 
Why? Because rulers rode horses. And the horse was the animal of war. But the donkey was the animal of peace. And it was ridden by the common man, the common woman, and it was the animal of peace. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem when he comes in the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, which is what this is. When he comes into the city, he's coming in in peace. And that's reaffirmed by the palms. The palms are a vision of peace. That's what they are. When they brought the palms, it meant we come in peace. It's sort of like in wartime, if they've got a 50 caliber machine gun on you and you realize there's no hope, then you immediately wave the white flag. And the white flag means peace. When they raise the palms, here comes the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Here he comes, and he comes in peace. The great and terrible God who could kill all of us is not terrible. He's a God of peace and love and kindness and forgiveness. And it's not that we live perfect lives. It's that he lived a perfect life. And it's not that we do everything right. It's that he did everything right. And it's not that we're earning heaven. It's the fact that he built it for us because he loves us. Amen? Let's say it one more time. Amen? Amen. amen. Punch the person next to you and say, say amen. 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 All right. Okay. We're down to the end of this message. And what we want to have is peace in our hearts with the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in Him that everything will be all right. How does that happen? It happens by, first of all, giving yourself to Christ. It happens living a life where you trust Him every day. There's this thing we do sometimes. We think that, that we have to be good, and so we've got to do all these things to be good so we can make God happy with us. I think that's a misunderstanding of what God's love is all about. His love is not about us being good. His love is about He's being good. And He's kind to us and He loves us as we are. Sometimes when children do something wrong, they're fearful because their parents will be upset that they did it. But a lot of times the parents expected it to be that way. They just expect it. That's what little girls do. That's what little boys do. That's what teenagers do. And that's why we get ulcers and headaches over teenagers. We know. We know what's coming. But we love them just the same. We love them just the same. We embrace them just the same. Because that's the nature of us to them. How much more is it with God towards us that He loves us? So let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Here's the words of Jesus. Jesus said, any man, and that's generic for man or woman, boy or girl, any man that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you come to Christ, then you are his. You're his. You belong to him. 
He's not going to toss you out. He's not going to reject you. You say, you know, I've been a bad sinner. You're not going to be rejected. You come to Christ, you're his. He loves you. I want us to pray that sinner's prayer, and all of us pray it, like we do every Sunday. And we pray it loud, because maybe there's someone seated next to you that needs to pray it for the first time. And they're shy, and they're bashful. And so we pray it loud because that gives them the opportunity to pray with us and pray believing in the Lord Jesus. So pray with me and let's pray loud. And if this is your first time you're giving yourself to Jesus today, here's the prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sins. Please save my soul. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Please take me to heaven when I die. Amen. Feels good to pray it, doesn't it? Let's stand together. If you prayed that prayer for the first time in your life, then today is the day of your new birth. This is your spiritual birthday. And remember, we can baptize in this church. And matter of fact, because we're meeting at the Hampton Inn, we have the largest baptistry in all of Livingston Parish. And we can set up baptism this coming Sunday, Easter Sunday. It's been a great day, hasn't it? Been wonderful. I think we've covered all the bases. And so be sure and greet each other and tell each other that you'll see them on Easter. And let's invite folks to come to be with us. All right? All right. Turn to the next person and say, get busy, baby. <laughs>